Pete's Crab Shack. You used to answer the phone like that when we were in college every single time. I know. I thought about it just the other day and I was like, oh, okay, the next time we record, you have to call me and I have to answer that way because it's for old time's sake. Oh, that's hilarious. Well, welcome to Nostalgiaville. <laughs> well, also known as Pete's Crab Shack. Yeah. I would like three crabs, please. Uh, we cook them and serve them in crab patties, so almost like some yellow oh. squarish sponge. All right. I don't think I want any of that then. No. Um, how are you doing? <laughs> I am good. I have had so many things on my plate lately, and many of them are peeling off and resolving quite nicely. And so I'm feeling lighter and lighter as the days go on. And one of those has been the amount of heavy lifting it's been to do this series in the podcast. And today is it. We're, we're doing the final episode. I know. I can't believe it. And it's funny because I was walking out the door today to do this episode. And my wife said to me, hey, just got a text from my aunt. And she just wanted you to know that she has been listening in and that it's been really timely for her. And so shout out to Kristen's aunt. I didn't get her permission to use her name, so I'm not gonna, but shout out to Kristen's aunt and uh, all the other folks who have been listening and traveling this journey along with us. I have found all of what uh, Miroslav Wolf has said to be incredibly inspiring and challenging, and it's going to be fun to sort of wrap it up today. Yes, I'm so excited. I feel like there's a lot of takeaways, and I wouldn't mind just taking our thoughts segment and just kind of back and forth having a conversation about kind of our main takeaways from this entire book and this entire series we've been doing. That's perfect. I would love to do that. But uh, before we get there, you had mentioned, I don't remember if this was on a recording or if it was offline, but you mentioned that you really liked the things that Wolf has to say about the Trinity at the end of the book. Uh, and so I am really looking forward to hearing your thoughts about that and diving into some of the stuff that you appreciated about the Trinity and what he had to say there. Yeah. I mean, all of this kind of stems back for me personally to a class that I took in seminary on the doctrine of God. And prior to that, I had not done much study or reflection on the Trinity. But that class had a strong emphasis on the Trinity. And we'd read a number of different books and thoughts on this, and it really got me going. And then I did my main project in that class on John Zizioulis's book, which has come up so many times on this podcast. And I've just thought deeply about the Trinity ever since. I feel like it's so foundational and it's a, it put a lot of pieces in place for me that I didn't have before. And many of what I loved about those Trinitarian reflections, I find in Wolf's work. And so it just thrills me to no end to see them in print again. That's awesome. I am so intrigued by this because I think that we often think of the doctrine of the Trinity as something that is fairly remote and largely irrelevant. Mm. And he invites us to go from that place to asking 
to what degree can the Trinity offer us resources for our interpersonal and social lives? And I think that's a fascinating question. Yeah, it really is. And it's one, honestly, that he has to spend some time defending because there are many theologians who believe that the Trinity is such a God-oriented thing. It's it's between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and it's so other that there really isn't any analogy even to be drawn in the human sphere because it's just too, as you said, remote. So he has to spend some time arguing for, no, there is an analogy to be made, albeit a weak analogy, but we can learn some things about behaving as humans from how the Trinity behaves among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I agree with that position, and I find it to be hugely valuable. So I I appreciate that he, one, defends it, and two, uh, shows what we can learn from that. Yeah, so what were your takeaways from that? What struck you about what he said as far as what we can, in fact, take away from the Trinity in this sort of social sphere? Well, first, I appreciate what he says. He kind of qualifies this. He says that the statement that the Trinity establishes how human societies should be organized is false as it stands, unless we extensively qualify it. And Mm -hmm. I completely agree with that, right? Because God is God in God's space. And that is very, very different than being a human being. So we have to qualify it and say, our job is not to be little trinities in how we behave with one another. But he kind of has, in my mind, these tiers of analogy. Uh, One is, so scholars refer to the Trinity in two respects. One is the imminent Trinity. In other words, God and God space, how God interacts with the Godhead. But there's also the economic Trinity, which is more actually how we come to understand the Trinity in the first place. This is how God, Son, and Holy Spirit interacts with the created world. And so though they are the same, the Trinity is still the Trinity regardless of what space we're talking about. The economic Trinity is a subset or just a glimpse into the imminent Trinity. And then we have Jesus as the full representation coming to earth and teaching us how to be human and how we as humans can interact with the Trinity. And so we have like the imminent Trinity at the top of this pyramid. And then the next layer is the economic Trinity. And then that final layer is us as humanity. And so we're a number of steps removed from how God actually interacts in God's space. Yeah, they're almost, as you're saying them, they're almost sort of like those Russian nesting dolls, right? You have the Trinity. And by the way, this language, I'm sure I heard this language in seminary, but I did not remember this language at all. And he Mm. does not, for the very first time in the book, do a very good job of defining them. He just assumed everybody knew what they meant. Mm. And I had to look them up. And so I did the deeply theological work of Googling them uh, in order to... (laughs) actually figure out what these words meant. But, you know, you've got the largest doll is the Trinity as it relates to itself, transcending time and space from all eternity to all eternity. 
But then within that, there's the way that the Trinity relates to history. And that's sort of one doll within that larger doll. And then within that, there's the way that Jesus, as a part of the Trinity, relates to history as the incarnation of God. And then within that, there is the way in which he shows us how to be human. And so it, it, you're absolutely right. It feels like layers to me. And I think that's a fascinating way to look at it. Yeah, I really like your nesting doll analogy way better than my pyramid analogy, because you're right, specifically because it, it becomes smaller and smaller. And the smaller it is, the less analogous to the original, the less we can say it's a one-for-one one copy, because we just, we're not going to get this one-for-one one copy. We are never going to be God. We're never going to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean that there is no analogy to be made. Mm. And he he goes on to say, look, the whole demand of the scriptures says we are to be like God. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, we have a responsibility to imitate Christ. And that mm -hmm. is an important function as well. While we still acknowledge we cannot be God we have a responsibility to imitate God. And there are things that we can learn about the Trinity, particularly when it comes, as Wolf says, to identity and boundary maintenance and how we make space for the other that we can see in the Trinity that we need to emulate. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and this is where I appreciated this distinction he makes about how the Trinity does not offer us a social program. It offers us a social vision. We can aspire, again, in part, limited by our limitations and our fallenness, we can aspire to this kind of relating. That is an inspiring sort of vision for me. Yeah, I agree. It's very inspiring, but I also feel like there is an immediacy, like an, an actual reality that this is where I really appreciate John Zizioulis, right? We do have to imitate. We do have to strive for this vision. But Christ accomplished something very real and concrete when he came and died on our behalf. And so this opportunity, and we really see this in John 17 with the great priestly prayer, this idea of being in Christ and being in the Father as Jesus is in the Father, and all of this as Wolf would say, mutual interiority that is described in John 17, that's what Jesus makes possible. Both, and I really love this double application of this mutual interiority, we have the opportunity as humans to be in Christ, to mutually indwell with Christ. But also, we as a church and as an ecclesial body get a chance to participate in Christ together. And to corporately, we make up the body of Christ. And that is our entrance point, if you will, into some form of Trinitarian reality, some sort of intimate, mutual interior relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that is wild and yet concrete and true. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and this is where he makes about our identity in particular these two really strong statements 
that I find to be very valuable uh, limitations on the conversation about how do I relate to the other. You know, he talks about how, on the one hand, our identity is non-reducible, and on the other hand, our identity is not self-enclosed. And I think what he's saying is, on the one hand, there is a distinctiveness to our individual identity that is never lost. Like, we're never going to claim the same ideal as certain forms of Buddhism, for example, that say, the ultimate fulfillment of reality is for me to be a drop of water in the ocean that loses its individuality completely, right? Like, that is not what the Trinity teaches us is the ideal. My individuality matters and is an eternal part of how to relate. But on the flip side, my individuality exists only in the context of other persons, the same way Father, Son, and Holy Spirit find their identity by not being the other two. So there's this sort of, I think he uses the phrase somewhere, there's a sort of chorus boundary. Mm. And he asks this fascinating question. How does one know when to close the boundaries of self in order to stabilize one's identity and when to open them in order to enrich it? Yes. And his answer to that was so, so good. I just want to make this a rule of my life. I think this is the most quotable thing that he's put in the entire book. He says, the only advice possible is to seek supple wisdom rather than stable rules. Yes. Oh my gosh, that was pure gold. Do you remember the band Cademan's Call? Absolutely. So the lead singer of Cademan's Call was a guy named Derek Webb. And mm -hmm. he went off to have a solo career and... I, I vaguely understand that maybe he has also since deconstructed his faith. Maybe, maybe I'm misquoting. I don't know. Um, that wouldn't shock me. He, I loved his solo music. His first album solo was amazing, and then there was a level of frustration or bitterness that kind of increased with the next couple of albums to the point where I was like, ah, this is not the space I'm in. It's still some mm -hmm. great music, but not the space I'm in. Oh my gosh, great music, and he's such a beautiful lyricist. I, mm -hmm. I just love what he puts together. But one of his solo songs was on this very thing. He was kind of lamenting, mocking, ridiculing, I don't know, the tendency within the church to not apply wisdom, but instead just like ask for a new law. I love this song. Yes. Don't teach me about truth and beauty. Just give me a new law, right? Don't teach me about all these things. Just give me a shot of grape juice. Like just make it super plain and simple. Tell me exactly what I'm supposed to do. And don't let me put my judgment in there. Don't let me think this thing through. Just tell me what I'm supposed to do. And Wolf and obviously Derek Webb are, are fighting against that tendency and say, no, the only advice possible is to seek supple wisdom rather than stable rules. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I had a moment where I was actually thinking about this again with my daughter this last week. You know, she's 14. And so we're wandering around Hobby Lobby as we are wont to do in our father-daughter time. 
And she looks at me and she says, should I be listening to Taylor Swift? And I said, what what do you mean? Have I given you the impression that I don't think you should be listening to Taylor Swift? And she said, no, I just was wondering. And I brought her to the verse in Philippians 4 that says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is pure, et cetera, et cetera. I think there's something about bright colors in there or whatever. Um, Think about these things. And I said, if this is the principle, how do you live that out? And at the end of the day, it was far more important to me that she sought wisdom than that she had a rule to follow in that situation. I really didn't care where she landed. I just, Mm -hmm. as long as she landed there through thinking. Yes, I know. I tell my kids all the time, my biggest desire for them is that they love Jesus and they seek wisdom. Mm -hmm. If you do those things and, and that's how you live your life day to day, you are going to be just fine. Absolutely. Well, and this is where, at least for my money, it is so important to cultivate a group of people that are your go-to folks. Mm. You know, you know this because you are on my list, but I love the fact that you are also on my wife's list. When my wife has a complicated decision to make, she has a group of people she calls, one of whom is you. Everybody needs that list of people. Uh, Yeah, 100%. Not to answer the question for you, but to help you think intelligently about it. Yes. The wise people don't try to answer the question for you, uh, which is one of the things I appreciate about when I'm talking to you about something complicated in my life. And I, I was saying this to a, a coaching client earlier today. Uh, she was marveling about how far she came in a simple 30-minute conversation. And she said, you know, I, sometimes I just don't understand what happens between when I walk in here and I walk out. And I, I said, well, part of it is in the best and most loving way possible, I don't care. You know, my job as a coach isn't to help you get where I want you to get. It's to not care where you need you go so that I can give you the space with integrity to get wherever you need to get. Yeah. She was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> and that's, I think, at the end of the day, what therapists and coaches and lots of other kinds of people do really are, you know, years and years ago in in Safest Place on Earth, Larry Crabb said, therapists will always be necessary, but some of what we need therapists for is because we don't have the right kind of friends. Mm. And he was not digging therapy. He was just saying, if we had enough friends that offered us space to practice wisdom to work ourselves out. That's what friends are supposed to do. And it speaks to the fact that we don't have enough of those people in the world that we have to go get a therapist to help us. It doesn't mean we shouldn't get a therapist to help us, but it speaks to something systemically wrong with the world. Yeah. Man, I am realizing we have chased one of our favorite bunny trails. And I'm very... I'm very happy to be where we are, but I would I do want to come back to uh, this Trinity. And, you know, we jumped off mm-hmm. at the point where how do we negotiate identity? 
And how do we know when to close the boundary and when to open ourselves up to the other? And he says, look, you just have to exercise wisdom. You can't, there's not a rule for that. So as we come back to the Trinity, I want to ask you, when you reflect on the Trinity, what do you see as the main way that it can influence how we behave as humans? You know, my top-notch moment in this piece, and I think for me, it is the biggest takeaway for me. He talks about self-donation next, which is a major theme of the entire book. But he talks about how if we're truly going to get the Trinity, we need to think not just about what he calls the sublime thoughts of loving one another and get to the actual hard, practical, gritty realities of loving one another, particularly in a messy, broken, fallen, unjust, unholy world. And he goes on to say, if you want to know the way to apply Trinitarian self-donating love to that context, the answer is the cross. Mm-hmm. We know this because it is, in fact, what the Trinity did in that context. Yeah, that was my takeaway as well. In fact, I really love the fact that he said, look, we can't look to the imminent Trinity, this idea of God in God's space that we can only glimpse at a distance and infer some things about it. We can't look to that and say, that's our model. We have to just live in this mutual interiority, everybody within everybody, and it's all safe and we're all one yet somehow differentiated. He said, that can't be our model. The imminent Trinity cannot be our model. But Mm -hmm. the economic Trinity, as seen in the self-giving love of Jesus on the cross, what he actually did for humanity and what the Godhead actually did for humanity, this lowering oneself and extending the arms of the Trinity out to its enemies, that can be our model. And that this extending of the arms, not just in like redemption, but also in terms of like desiring a relationship, you come and join me, this invitation This self-donation for the purpose of relationship is the model. And I loved that. And I thought that is such a challenging model and one that he works out in great detail throughout this book, but one that I'm just really left holding on to as my personal challenge coming out of this book. Yeah, me too. I am always appreciative of the fact that he is interested in asking these questions Even though they are very heady questions, he asks them in deeply practical, pragmatic ways. He's not shying away from the mess of reality. And the frank reality is that if we look at any social group that we are a part of, the political party we're a part of, or the religious subset that we are a part of, or even the individual that we are in relationship to other complicated individuals, we are going to have messy moments where there is significant risk in doing things the way the crucified Jesus did things. Because there is no guarantee it's going to change the other person's heart or attitude. Yeah. And that is is not the judge of whether or not it's the way I want to do things or not. This is a 
a non-pragmatic way of living pragmatically in the world, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It is anti-Machiavellian, let's say that. It is not the (laughs) ends justifies the means, right? right? It is the opposite of that. Yeah. Man, I'm like ready to jump on that and, and get into some of my main takeaways from the book. But before I do, I want to make sure. Do you have any other thoughts on the Trinity before we dive into just like general takeaways from the book? Uh, nope. When you asked my main thing, that was the one thing I had left. Really, that idea was for me one of the big highlights. So, yeah, let's. Mm. I'm so curious about takeaways. It's always, at least for me, really, really important. I have to pause at the end of any good book and ask, what are the things I want to hold on to? Yeah. Because otherwise it just becomes one of those books I read and it had some great thoughts, but something about putting it all together galvanizes it in my brain and I'm able to access the ideas better. So, Hit me with one of yours. What was one of your takeaways from this book? Yeah, and takeaways almost feels like the wrong word. And I don't know what word to substitute, so I'm not uh, picking on you. I'm saying, you know, there's a phrase that Wolf uses in his own epilogue, because he wrote this epilogue in this revised and expanded version. He wrote it 25 years after the first printing of the book. And he says in there, no other of his books books has been so unsparing with him as this book. Mm. And it's that sort of challenge that I'm taking away from this book and that that I don't want to lose. I think his challenge for me comes in the question, what does it really mean to follow the crucified Messiah? How can I self-donate to the world even when the person receiving that donation is potentially an enemy? How do I risk with open arms the invitation to come and enjoy and embrace together? I think that's my main sort of vision, my main sort of challenge that I don't want to lose. And it really comes down in my mind, the way I boil all that down is, what does it mean to really follow the crucified Messiah? And I'm cognizant of what he points out, the fact that at the very center of the throne room in Revelation, when all of this scene kind of galvanizes and every and and the question is asked, who is worthy to open up this scroll? And all of heaven seems to wait for the answer. It's the crucified Messiah as the slain lamb who's at the center of the throne. And he is worthy to open up the scroll. It just tells me that the cross, what Jesus accomplished on the cross is so central. And if I'm going to claim that that's my Messiah and that's who I follow, my life has to in some way be cross-shaped. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious. You know, we keep this in the sort of heady realm a lot of times. Practically, what does that mean? You know, we're very intentional on this podcast of not naming sides, right? We -hmm. have identified a number of debates around which this topic is really important, right? Israel and Hamas, 
MAGA and never Trumpers. On down the line, we could go. We could choose a number of the culture war issues that face our country right now. We could talk about the LGBTQ issue, or we could talk Mm -hmm. about women in ministry. I have sides that I fall on, on all of those topics. And we intentionally don't choose sides on this, on these topics, on this podcast, because I don't think we as an American Christian church really embrace Wolf's thinking. And I think we find it more important to push everybody, push ourselves toward Wolf's thinking without debating the actual issues. I think mm-hmm. if we arrive where Wolf wants us to arrive, we're in a much healthier place. So I don't want to reveal my sides, but I do want to say I definitely come down very strongly on some of these issues. And where the rubber hits the road for me is to look across the aisle at the people who take the opposite side and sometimes take the opposite side in ways that Wolf himself would say are not very Christ-like and say, there's something there that I need. There's a relationship there that I need, that I need to be willing to donate myself to quote unquote that guy and have fellowship with quote unquote that guy. That's really, really challenging. Yeah, especially with, you know, some of the things we were talking about, even in the Trinity section. The way I wrote this particular challenge down for myself, I think it's a similar idea, is this idea that an embrace involves me being willing to open my arms and wait. And there's a huge level of vulnerability in what Wolf calls diminishing myself in order to make room for the other person. Mm-hmm. And that is a surrendering of my program in a way that is very hard. You know, whatever my particular program is, whatever the the political or social or theological stance that I want to argue for, Wolf's challenge, you know, he said a number of times throughout the book that justice can only be justice if we prioritize embrace before justice. Embrace allows us to discover justice. I think you can make justice a blank that we fill in with whatever our pet issue is. Prioritizing embrace over that thing allows us to discover that thing in a better, healthier, more whole way. And that is super hard for me, especially when we dive into some of these culture war issues and I take my really hard stance and I realize I am the older brother in the prodigal son story because what I cannot stand, there's there's vulnerability, there's risk in opening our arms. But I think it's not just personal vulnerability and personal risk. The risk that I can't stand is the risk that that other person will continue to be wrong. I want to set them right. I want to tell them the right way to think. I want to tell them the right way to behave. I want to tell them the right way to see this issue. And they're wrong. And because they're wrong, I don't want to embrace them. I don't want to make embrace prime. I want them to see my way of thinking 
as prime, and then we can embrace. Mm-hmm. It's so hard. It is. Well, and, you know, again, in this last section on the Trinity, he uses this phrase, we diminish ourselves in order to make room for the other, believing that they can somehow enrich us. Yeah. I don't want to go to some of these groups of people believing that I can be enriched. Yes. I just don't, because I don't like them. And they don't like me. Yeah, no. Well, you're not very likable, but they don't like your side. Yes, right. Well, and that's where the, I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but if I compromise and they don't compromise, then it's going to look like they're right and I'm wrong. Yes, yes. Well, and I'm sure that that's where the older brother looked at his dad and went, are you kidding me? You're going to let all of this be okay? He spat in your face, took his inheritance, ran off, squandered it, and now he comes back and you don't say boo about it? You're just treating it like it's okay? I get it. I get the older brother so much. And yet, I'm being called to be more like the father who says relationship is prime, justice, right doctrine, or whatever is actually secondary. I'm a seminary graduate. I believe really strongly in good doctrine. I That relationship is prime? That's hard. It is really hard. And even to believe not just that it's prime, but that it's prime because something about the relationship can actually get me closer to right doctrine? Really? Mm. With those people? You know, this is the... One of my other takeaways that kind of relates here is this idea of double vision. When I get to this moment, one of the challenges for me is for me to pause and ask myself the double vision questions. How does that person see themselves and how does that person see me? Yeah. And if I can ask those things honestly, and it may be that I have to ask the person, Right. Yes, exactly. I, I was just thinking I may that. literally have to stop the conversation about the topic and start a conversation about the conversation and be open to the fact that what they are seeing in me may have some accuracy to it, right? That's the problem. It's not necessarily that they see the doctrine right, but they may see me right. They may see a piece of my brokenness and sin that I am wildly blind to. And if I let their perspective be valid, man, I am not as awesome of a person as I thought I was. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I think that humility is another takeaway that I'm going to take from this book. This idea that there is, to use our prior language, there is right doctrine or there is true justice, there is a truth that is independent of me, it exists in the world, but my ability to see it, recognize it, apply it perfectly is flawed. And Mm -hmm. as convinced as I am about what the shape and scope of that truth or that justice or that whatever is, I've got something wrong somewhere and I need others, even those wackadoodle others, to help round me out. Mm-hmm. That's exactly it. And, and 
just the idea of humility is never going to be super popular in our culture, (laughs) right? Right. This is not one of the like sexy ideas to talk about in terms of church. It's not one of the things that's going to help us sell church better. Uh, Yeah. But it's so vital. This is where on some level it becomes about character formation instead of doctrine formation, Mm. right? Which I think is exactly what Jesus was all about. You read the parables, you read the stories that Jesus told and the way that he went about his ministry, very little of it was about imparting right doctrine. It was imparting right ways to live. It was shockingly practical. Yeah, absolutely. And what is more revelatory about the brokenness in my own soul than honoring someone that is difficult for me and respecting them when I disagree with them? And what gives more light and space for God to do a work in those broken places than me bringing them out and letting them see the light of day through that process? That is a powerfully formative process. Yes. I love that you're talking about process, right? Again, going back to wisdom over rules, right? It's not you mm-hmm. just do X, just just do X and then you'll be fine. No, it's engage in this process and you will develop, you will grow, you will become the type of person that Christ intended you to be. You will, more and more, your life will be cross-shaped. Mm-hmm. It's a process. It absolutely is. And that means... I'm not looking just to get it right this time, right? I'm looking far more long distance than that. I'm looking to be formed by this time, to do it better next time. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you and thank our audience for going down this journey together. Boy, this has been a heady book, a challenging book to apply, and I hope that we find just like Miroslav Wolf did, that this really becomes unsparing with us, that it forces us to grow and develop the type of character that Wolf is advocating. Even if we don't agree with every single aspect of what he teaches in this book, I think he's pushing us to a really, really healthy place. So we can only do that together. Mm -hmm. So once again, I want to invite everybody, come join the conversation on social media. But more than that, Engage with this book with a friend or with somebody with whom you anticipate disagreeing strongly. Maybe really engage this book together to find out how you guys can develop the character necessary to engage the issues more healthfully. It could be a huge challenge. Yeah, absolutely. But one that, uh, as you've said a couple of times, it is through that process that the cross is formed in our character. And what could we aspire to that is greater than that? For sure. Wow. Well, I think the only thing left to do is ask a Witch Josh question. Ooh, are you ready for one? All right, go for it. All right, here it is. Which Josh hates clam chowder? 
Well, this must be me because your New England roots would have said clam chata. Ch- ch- how, how do you say it? Chowd- yeah. Chata? Chowda. Okay. Yeah. So given the fact that I have an R on the end, uh, that is me, Josh from Oregon. I can't stand clam chowder. Okay. Um, so which kind of clam chowder can you not stand? Okay. This is my ignorance showing. I had no idea there was more <laughs> than one. Because so like, look, clams in like little milk sauce, that's clam chowder and it's just gross. I don't, what else do you do to it to make it something else? There is, so New England clam chowder is white and there is another kind of clam chowder that is sort of a reddish color that I don't like and don't ever eat. So, okay. But you said milky. So clearly you're thinking about white clam chowder. Right. What's, what's the red stuff? It's, I don't know. I just call it red clam chowder. It's from every place else. I don't know. I don't like it. It's made from the Uh, blood of the clams. Yes, I guess so. So you don't like New England clam chowder? No, it is. Oh, it's just awful. In fact, so when I was a kid, my parents would make clam chowder and they would try to get me to eat it. But because I loved turtles at the time, I don't know why I loved turtles, but like at four years old, turtles were the coolest thing. And so they would say, oh, well, this is turtle soup. It's not clam chowder. It's turtle soup. And like try to get me to eat it. Uh, I don't think that that really worked. And I think maybe at some point, like I ate clam chowder right before getting the flu. And so that version of clam chowder just kind of sticks in my brain. So, you know, I I just can't do it. I don't, I don't like it at all. All right. So I'm going to have to turn to any of our New England listeners and ask them in the, the Witch Josh post this week in the comments, can you please let us know the best place to get good clam chowder near you because somehow we need to find a way to help this man understand that maybe he can overcome this ungodly dislike of his. (laughs) Uh, We're going to help him practice embrace on a very, very practical level uh, and believe that his life can be enriched by an experience of the other. It's going to be great. Okay, your little guilt trip is not going to work. And there is an amazing clam chowder place, or at least so I'm told, on the Oregon coast called Moe's. And everybody says, like, Moe's has the best clam chowder. And, like, if you don't like clam chowder, at least go eat at Moe's. I have refused to eat at Moe's. And for my Oregon friends, that's going to be a crime in and of itself. But no, I, I don't care if you find me a great restaurant in New England. I won't go. One. I didn't go to the one that's down the street from me, so I'm not going to go to the one that's on the other coast. All right. Well, if you're willing on either coast to pray with me for our dear (laughs) friends' healing and transformation, just put in the comments praying uh, or the two little hands symbol, uh, and we all know what that means. Okay. And the rest of you thinking people who realize this is not a spiritual (laughs) issue, put the little vomit emoji for what is real about clam chowder. All right. Well, hey, are we on for next week? Yes. Let's do it. And let's do something other than Wolf. Yes. I have so many random thoughts in my head because we've had lots of weeks of not actually getting to share our thoughts that we just 
come up with during the week, we'll have to figure out some way to get to share our thoughts next week because I have so many things I want to talk to you about. Oh, that would be awesome. Like a whole episode of just sloppy leftover thoughts. Yes, exactly. Ah, cool. All right, let's do it. All right, I'll talk to you then. Okay, bye. Bye.